Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, senior pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Amen. Hey, I want to say again, just a word of welcome uh, to our guests this morning. If you're here and new uh, to Prospect, I want to say hello, and we're glad that you're here. There's a perforated card uh, in your bulletin. I'd love for you to fill that out, and uh, you can make your attendance known with us, and we'd love to follow up with you, pray for you, and uh, get to know you a little bit better, better in your story, how God is at work in your life. If you have your Bibles, hope you do. You can turn them on or turn them to uh, the book of Colossians chapter number one. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29. And as you are turning there, I just want to say just an introduction about this incredible little book. Colossians is probably one of my favorite uh, epistles of the apostle Paul. Paul is writing to the local church at Colossae who is likely being uh, pressured or at least susceptible to a particular false teaching about the person of Christ. It's what's known as many theologians call it the Colossian heresy that sought to rob God of his divinity. And so in response, the apostle Paul pins this letter to them. And in the context, he begins to speak as we hone in on the context of verses 24 through 29. He has just finished speaking about the lordship of Christ, really defending the erroneous teaching of the Colossian heresy. And he begins speaking in this Christocentric hymn of the kingship of Christ in verses 15 through 20. You know it very well that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Says he is before all things, he continues, and in him all things hold together, he continues. And he is the head of the church. And the firstborn from among the dead. And he is to be first place in everything. He he continues and goes further and says that not only that, but he has brought about reconciliation and redemption through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And we now bear a responsibility to continue in that faith by the power of his spirit that is at work within us. And he concludes and he moves into verses 24 through 29, the grand conclusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ and specifically about his own ministry that which he has been called, this mission and ministry of the apostle Paul. What is it that he is called to? And what I want to do this morning is see what the apostle Paul is called to and then also bear some implications for us about how we too have been called toward that end as well. And that what we are aiming towards, yes, as individuals and as a corporate body, is aiming towards Colossians 1, 24 through 29. As I was speaking to the search team that, 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 that the Lord used to bring me here, they said there was a phrase that was often used about prospect that was maybe put on the side of vans or put on the wall somewhere. And it said simply this, where everyone is someone. And what I want to 
appeal to you this morning, beloved, is that as we continue to march forward in the, in the future and honoring the past, but looking forward to what God has in store for us, I want to point our attention to Colossians 1, 28 and the last part of that, and namely that may we present everyone mature in Christ. That yes, everyone is someone, but our mission and our goal is to present every person mature in Christ. That as a church, that is what we are aiming towards. It encompasses mission, evangelism, discipleship, prayer, humility, humble dependence upon the Lord to move. It's having this framework in mind that the Apostle Paul would say, at the end of my life, I want my life to count. He says, but I don't count my life as anything precious or as any value to me if only I may finish my course in ministry that the Lord has for me. It's this idea of living with the end in mind. And if there are tons of things that can begin to distract us and knock us off course, and we can begin to get off focus to shift our mindset about what it is that we're called to, The Apostle Paul knew this to be true. And I think what the Apostle Paul said, why he would make such a statement in his life, is he would say, I don't want my life to get off track anymore. Because his life in Judaism, he knew that he had missed the mark. He knew that he had gotten off track. And he wants his life to count. And I think each and every one of us in this room this morning has the same desire in our hearts as well. That we want our life to count. We want our life to matter. We want what we do in this world to matter and to make a difference beyond us. We want what we do collectively as a body and as a church to go beyond these walls and impact a community, something greater than ourselves. We want our life to matter. And I think the Apostle Paul gets at that this morning in Colossians 1 verse 24 through 29. And so if you would, in honor and reverence of God's word, would you stand as we read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. The apostle Paul says this, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and I in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are his riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works Within me. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see Christ and his gospel exalted, that we would lift up the name of Christ. And as the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw them into himself. And so, Father, I pray to that end this morning. I pray that your spirit would come. I pray that you would bring about conviction and transformation. God, only a work that you can do. And so, Father, have your way with us. God, give us hearts to receive your word and to obey your word and to apply your word in all of our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to point your attention just to a few things, really four. The outline goes as this. It's in your bulletin. Number one, that our suffering is sure, that our message is fixed, 
that our task is daunting, but our God is strong. And pointing you to this reality, point number one, that our suffering is sure. Look what the Apostle Paul begins with in verses 24 through 25. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The Apostle Paul begins and he says, this suffering is a means through which I rejoice in. Often we have this posture when trouble or adversity comes in our life, we don't like it, we reject it. We often equate it maybe with disapproval or a consequence or mistake that we made in our life. My concern is that we're creating a a form of Christianity that is void of suffering and maybe even void of persecution altogether. And that the hardships and the threat of Christian suffering, Paul had a different perspective in mind. He said that it was a given, it was going to happen, and Paul met it with expectations of joy. He says that this was expected, and I rejoice in suffering. Maybe it was because the Apostle Paul remembers his conversion story in Acts chapter 9 that he is a chosen instrument of the Lord and and the Lord will show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And the Apostle Paul meets suffering, meets persecution, meets hardship and trial and says, I'm okay with it and it will be my joy. The scripture that we read this morning for Philippians 1 that either imprisonment It is really served to advance the gospel. The gospel is spreading. Jesus says to his followers, he says that they will hate you because of my name. Jesus promised that we would be hated because we follow Christ. He says further that you're blessed when you're persecuted. Not that you should run or necessarily try to avoid it, but when it comes, know that it is blessing Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So it ought not come as a surprise, Christian, that living for Christ and proclaiming Christ is a message that will not be accepted in this world. It is a message that will often be met with threat and a message that will be met with a lack of acceptance. But the message shouldn't be hindered. We should continue to proclaim Christ. It's not culturally sensitive or relevant, but nonetheless, we should proclaim Christ when they're told that we should stop, we continue, and say if persecution comes because of this message, we continue to lift up the banner of Jesus. And it is for Christ the Apostle Paul says that I am proclaiming to you and if suffering comes, I rejoice. He says further that even though this suffering is happening, it is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. I tell you what so often happens is when adversity comes, persecution comes, threat comes, we begin to look at the glass half empty. And oh man, isn't this awful? Isn't this awful? Isn't this horrible? The Apostle Paul says, no, the glass is not half empty. The glass is half full and it is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. I am joining my Savior in how he suffered and I am joining him in his suffering and what he has called me to. And it is union with Christ when persecution comes or when suffering comes. And even through this threat of persecution or suffering or affliction, it is actually 
acting as cover fire that the gospel can go forward into all the world. And all throughout the book of Acts, when you read Acts and you study the book of Acts, what you see are three primary elements that come forth and you see the growth and development of the local church. And it has absolutely nothing to do with programs or pragmatism. It has everything to do, beloved, with prayer, proclamation of the gospel and his word, and the church suffering persecution and threat. That there is prayer from the church, there is proclamation of the gospel, and a church that is under threat and under persecution, yet what you see in Acts 2.41, 2,000 people come to know the Lord. What you see in Acts 2.47 is that they continue to grow daily, and the the Lord added to their number. You see in Acts chapter 4, you see 5,000 coming to trust the Lord Jesus and join the local church. You see in Acts chapter 5 that more were added to their number daily in the midst of intense persecution being told you can't speak the name of Jesus yet a church that was unwavering to proclaim the gospel and the banner of Jesus Christ and to surrender to the Lord in prayer and say God would you do it and all throughout history beloved there is this story of our faith that is filled with this tension that suffering and persecution is inevitable but that God has a perfect purpose through it. And when you study the story and history of Christianity, it is filled with men and women who gave their lives to see this gospel go forward. And it is filled with suffering and affliction for those who would follow Christ. And so we need not be surprised, beloved, if it comes to us as well. Christ told us that it would. And the truth is, beloved, is that right now, right now, there are brothers and sisters all over this globe who are just as much your brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering, that are being persecuted right now. And yes, we may have a soft form of persecution But we ought not be surprised if it becomes harder and harder and more severe as it is in other parts of the world, even right now. The Apostle Paul tells us, he tells Timothy, he says in Timothy chapter 3, verses 12, he says, Indeed, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so he says here in Colossians chapter 1 is that our suffering is sure. It's sure, it is going to happen and we ought not be surprised. In living for Christ, persecution will come. Our suffering is sure. But more than that, our message is fixed. Look at how he ends verse 25. That he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that is from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden from ages into generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what I want to say and bring out in this text is that the message of the church is clear. Our message is fixed. 
And it is unequivocally and intentionally the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to make the word of God, he says, to make the word of God fully known. He says one chapter earlier in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, Of this you heard before the word of truth. That is, he tells us what that is, the gospel which has come to you and indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and is increasing. How many of you know that the gospel, when it comes to you, is going to someone else? It is bearing fruit and increasing. God intends that the gospel coming to you would go out of you and affect the world. It is bearing fruit, he says, and is increasing. The gospel is going, but our message is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, the news of Christ saving sinners. That those dead in their trespasses and sin, hostile to God, revilers of God, he would say in Colossians, deserving of God's full condemnation from him and in their own merit do not deserve God's love. They deserve his wrath because of their sin. And the all-righteous, all-holy king of the world to whom we all must stand and give an account will stand before him guilty and deserving of condemnation. And the good news is this. The good news is that through the life, the perfect life of Christ, through the death, the sacrificial death of Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ and the resurrection and the power of his resurrection of Christ, God in his grace is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And that through repentance and faith in Jesus, though who utterly should stand condemned by God, through Christ have been born again, given a new identity, received the merit of Jesus Christ taking on their sin and suffering and dying in your place, taking on the wrath of God that you deserve, God placing it totally on Jesus. And he became an acceptable sacrifice and substitute for your sin. And this great exchange that takes place of your sin and condemnation in exchange for Christ's righteousness and acceptance before God the Father. God taking your sin away and putting it on himself. And you receiving all the benefit through Christ, namely his perfection and righteousness. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the true king and the Lord over all the world, giving you his Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into truth and the kingdom of God. We proclaim the message of the gospel. That it is God reconciling the world to himself through the work of Jesus Christ to make the word of God fully Known is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, continues, I'm a minister. I'm a steward of this message, this stewardship. You know what the language that's used there? The language that's used there is one of a table host. It's one that's just, I'm just merely delivering the course meal to the table. I've got my apron on. I've got, I'm serving up to you the word of God. It is a message that was given to me by God. It was given to me, he says, but has also been revealed to his saints. And then he begins to continue further and discuss this mystery. This mystery that was hidden 
from ages. Paul picks up the mystery again in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to turn there and see what the Apostle Paul says of this mystery, we can get a good clear shot of what it is in Colossians number 1. But just to paint a broader perspective of this mystery that the Apostle Paul has mentioned. He says, when you read this, this is verse 4 through 6, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it had been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. That as the scripture begins to unfold and the word of God, been the plan of God for salvation begins to unfold, it was in many ways a mystery. The creation, the fall, God's people established through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel given a promise that through the offspring of Abraham, God would bless the nations. And the gospel continues into the New Testament. And people begin looking for this Messiah. And they think he's going to be a military leader. And what to their surprise, the one that they thought would be the Messiah... Instead of conquering through conquest and might, is put on a cross and crucified. And the military leader that they thought would bring hope to the people of Israel, it was confusing to them. They didn't understand what does this mean? Is Israel, Israel's not rejoicing like they should? What is this? Because there are things that are going on that are unknown. This mystery, God was working out his plan of redemption, it was hidden. But what no one saw coming was the extension of God's salvation and his grace to Gentiles. That those that were considered unclean and cut off from God's promises could now be included in was a complete shock to everyone. And the Apostle Paul writes to this Colossian church, these Gentiles, and says, this mystery, this secret that's been hidden for ages, I want you to see what it is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul means that these Colossians would see this reality, that the gospel has been extended not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. You are included You're included in his salvation. But further, Paul continues pressing in in what he says to awaken the Colossians to this great truth, the reality that God is himself in his people. He is in you. In other words, God just didn't say, well, I hope you good luck and hope you figure it out. I'm giving giving you some instructions on how to live and God bless you and good luck and I'll see you on the other side of this thing. The Apostle Paul says, no, he's in you, Galatians. He's in you, Gentiles. He's in you, church at Colossae. His redemption has not just redeemed you. He is living inside you. His spirit is in you. Think about what the Apostle Paul has said. This supreme Christ who is the head of the church, first place in everything, the power of creation, holding this entire universe together, the person that created everything, the fullness of God in whom was pleased to dwell, this Jesus, the king over all things, the one who saved you is living in you. 
That is incredible, incredible news. And his strength and, and power is empowering us to preach the gospel to all peoples and places that this message that is fixed is for both Jews and Greeks, for Israel and Gentiles. It is the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And we proclaim this church to make the word of God fully known. We proclaim it to all people. We proclaim it to all places. It's the faith that is handed down that God has made himself known. We are recipients of this message. God has spoken. The apostle Paul says it's been revealed to him and it's been revealed to his saints and it's been revealed through his son and through his word. And we don't need to be entertained, beloved. We don't need to be entertained with prophetic voices and get sidetracked from their message of what they believe will happen in the future and all that kind of silliness. God has spoken. His gospel is clear. And the word of God has been fully known and revealed through Christ and his gospel. And his message to the world is Christ for salvation. Christ for salvation. Christ for salvation. Our message is fixed. We preach Jesus. We preach the Lord's grace. And that should be our aim in all of life. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ for all of my days. And let me drop. And what echoes and rumbles beyond that is Christ for salvation. Christ for salvation. At the very king who stood over you as judge and had every right to condemn you, beloved, Christ for salvation. He reconciled you, Christ for salvation. And by his spirit, he's living in you. You are a new creature in Christ, experiencing now the coming hope that you have and his spirit is a guarantee of what's coming. Christ for salvation. Our suffering is sure. Our message is fixed. Our task is daunting. He continues in verse 28 and 29. To them God is to make known the how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory and this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of all this giving that God has given his message, but now the action that the Apostle Paul brings us to. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. All of this aiming towards the end that him we proclaim. The verbal idea is that we proclaim Christ and we do it both negatively, we warn people, and also positively, we teach all people. But we proclaim, we boldly announce the message of Christ for salvation, warning of the coming judgment, warning that all will give an account, teaching and instructing all the ways of Christ. This is precisely what Jesus had in mind in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when he says, go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
It is this teaching and warning that it's this idea of discipleship and Christian maturity to see growth and the conforming of a person to the image of Christ and growing in their knowledge of truth. That is the aim in which the Apostle Paul lived his life and the aim in which that we should live our life as well. It's that of Christian maturity. Parents, the aim of your mission as parents isn't just to just wish your children the best. It's to instruct them, to teach them, to model for them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the front lines of the local church and discipleship within that isn't in the ministries of the local church. It begins in the home, Christian. It's that of maturity. It's that of discipleship. It's that of growing in progress in Christ. Teaching all things. Husbands and wives, your mission in this world is not merely to aspire to your version or some version of the American dream and that your, your spouse is just there to make you happy. And if they don't, well, you can find somebody else. No, your marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. And it is a means through which you model and display Christ to a watching world. That your marriage isn't private. It's public. It's union, it's service, it's sacrifice, it's unwavering commitment to one another. It's about Christian maturity. Christian, your job, your occupation isn't just the means through which you make a wage, but it is the order of God, it is the means by which God has ordained for us that we should work. And yes, it is difficult because of the fall, but it is also an opportunity that in everything that you do to display the glory of God. It's about discipleship. It's about walking in maturity. Church, we're not just a physical building that people come into where the paid professionals are hired to do all the work. In fact, the New Testament gives us the opposite picture of that. That we're to equip and train the saints for the work of ministry. And yes, the ecclesia, part of what it means to be the ecclesia, the church, is that we gather together. That's what it means. The word ecclesia is the gathered assembly or the called out assembly. And we've honestly, I think, confused that a lot. And we've heard other voices speaking in like, well, you don't really have to gather as a church. We need to just be the church. I understand that sentiment and that is important. But I think that statement misses the mark. Part of what it means to be the local church is that you gather together. We are the gathered assembly. It is by definition who we are. But we don't just only gather. The Apostle Paul would mean that as we scatter, we should continue in the mission. Note the language that Paul uses here. Note the language that he uses. It's one of plurality. Paul doesn't just say, I proclaim him or that I may present. He says, we proclaim him. We do it. We present everyone mature in Christ. It is a calling for all believers. The aim is to preach Christ and maturity for all believers in right doctrine and right living. That we bring this presentation, this big reveal to say, here it is, the grand crescendo of all that we've been working for, their maturity in Christ. That's the call of the local church. But it's simply, I would argue, not the model and posture of many churches today. Rather, it's one of pragmatism and attraction, 
And if we're not careful, one of carnality. To be of absolute truth, even proclaiming Christ, it's really become more about how can we get people through the doors. And I think if you were to pry deep enough in many churches today, and it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to pry very deep, it shows. Because people come through the door and they feel entertained for a season and they walk by, right out the next one. And they hop around from one church to the next or they stay home and they'll say, ah, oh, this really just wasn't for me. Or do I really even need my Bible this week if I go to church? Has anyone encouraged me to even read this thing? That ought not be true in the local church, beloved. We are to aim towards Christian maturity. That each week that we should be leaving to this, has someone, has anyone considered or encountered my own sinfulness and in interacting with others? Have I had to die to self, repent of my sin, bear the burdens of a brother and sister in Christ? Have I been challenged to live on mission and to serve my neighbor and to serve Christ and to share Christ with the lost? Have I been challenged to grow in holiness in light of the gospel? Have I been accountable to the Lord and his people in covenanting together with the local church? Have I been spurred on toward maturity? That's the aim of the local church. And I think what's happened so often is that churches begin to find themselves wondering if we're attractive enough to bring the world in by the world's standards to keep them entertained. But the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. That is not your aim. Your aim, God has spoken And your aim is to gather together, scatter into all places and proclaim the gospel and to grow in maturity and conformity to Christ that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Daunting? Yes. Challenging? Yes. Hard? It is. Our suffering is sure Our message is fixed. Our task is daunting. But our God is strong. Notice how he ends in verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that is powerfully working within me. Paul says, I toil. I work hard. I work harder than anyone, he would say. Yet it was the Lord working through me. And I got to be honest with you. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that discipleship, evangelism, church growth, and salvation, however you want to fill in the lines there, all of it is a work of the Lord. That's why he would say, I watered, Apollos planted, or I planted, Apollos watered, but the Lord gave the increase. And the simple philosophy, if you want to know my ministry philosophy, as a pastor, is this, to preach the word, exalt Christ, point people to God's mission, and trust the Lord. To preach the word, to feed his sheep, to exalt Christ, to draw all men to himself, to point people to his mission, that God has given us a commission and command to go, and to trust the Lord to do the work. And the Apostle Paul is very clear. He says, I work hard. I work with all of my might. I labor. I toil to the degree that God has called me. But I do not do it and depend on my own strength or trust in myself. A life verse that I hang ministry in the life of the church is Psalm 27, verse 1. You probably know it well. It says, unless the Lord builds the house... Those who labor, labor in vain. 
And we might be zealous, church, to do the Lord's work and accomplish his mission and go and make disciples and proclaim the gospel. We might be very zealous in doing that, but I want to tell you, folks, we would be absolutely foolish if we thought it depended on us. The Lord is very clear. He has spoken that the work of regeneration, sanctifications, the changing of our affections, taking a person from death to life, being born again, bringing about repentance and faith, true heart transformation, giving power to live in accordance to the commands of Christ. That's something totally and completely beyond us. The Lord must do it. And we are dependent upon him to move. And so as I began the discussion with the search team of coming here, one of the things that was often mentioned, it was a term that was used of church revitalization. And I'm thankful for Philip and just drilling that down. I think it's an important thing to hear, an important thing to think about. But the idea of reclaiming and refocusing new life and vibrancy that we once knew. And I understand and I get that language. And as I listened to the search team and as we chatted more and more, I understood the language, but I took it with a grain of salt. And I'm going to tell you why. Number one is because the majority of churches in the U.S. right now are in that same boat. They're looking around thinking, how in the world did we get back where we once were, wherever that was? As I quoted to you last week on a conservative end, it's 65% of churches are plateaued to decline. On a less conservative end, maybe even more accurate end, 85% of churches are plateaued to decline in the U.S. That's the norm. But the second reason and more important reason was this, is because, folks, revitalization or not, the playbook is essentially the same. It's the same thing. And I have no idea if the Colossian church was a revitalization or not. I would beg to argue that it wasn't at that point. But I know that God intends for his local church to march into the future, not by searching for a former way of life or a former way of doing things necessarily, but by reclaiming the old truths and discovering once again what it is that God has called us to. And church, if you want to see what it is, read Colossians 1, 24, verses 1, 24 through 29. The outline of this text is exactly what the Lord has called his local church to. That we would be willing to embrace suffering if it comes. That we don't count our life as precious or any value at all, but only we may finish our course in ministry. That we say that God has spoken, his word is clear, his message, Christ for salvation. And we proclaim that to all people. That his message it's clear he's called us to go and make disciples and to work and to labor to that. And we strive not to entertain, but to press on to Christian maturity that we may present every person mature in Christ. And we trust the Lord to bear fruit, to trust the Lord to do his work through us. Unless the Lord builds the house prospect, we who labor will labor in vain. And I want to close this morning with that invitation. I think so often what's happened in Baptist churches is that this altar and coming forward is just a time that you come and you repent of your sin and you trust Christ or you, maybe you rededicate your life. But beloved, that is not the intent that God would have for his church in coming to meet with the Lord. God means so much more for you. Every single week, we should be responding to what God is doing in our life. 
And it shouldn't strike us at odd when someone walks forward to pray and think, oh, there must be something terrible going on in that person's life. Maybe they just want to simply come and respond. Maybe they just simply want to come and pray for their community. Maybe they just want to come and pray to say, God, you've got to do it. Because if you don't, we're laboring in vain. We're wasting our time and if you don't show up. And so I want to invite you all this morning to a twofold invitation that if you've not repented of your sin and trusted Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would see Christ for salvation is for you. But that secondly, for those that are in Christ, that you would come and that you would pray. You would pray for this church. You would pray that we would have a, mind, a mindset of whatever it takes to see the gospel go forward, to present people mature in Christ. But that we would pray to the end that his local church would conform our lives to submission to his word and to his son. That we would be bold in proclaiming Christ for salvation and aim to present every person mature in Christ. And would you come pray that God would do it. That God would begin to do a work in our church and in our world. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And the invitation this morning is for you to respond to Christ, but also come and to pray and to petition our prayers and say, God, if this text is a reality, the text is clear, that our suffering is sure, our message is fixed. We have a message and a banner that we proclaim to the world. That our message is fixed, but also that what we are to do and to call a life, that we are present those in maturity in Christ. And unless the Lord does it, yes, though our task is daunting, our God is strong. Would you res- res- respond to that in this morning? Let's pray together. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.